0: Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast. This audio is brought to you by Canon Press. This week, you will hear the first few chapters of Dr. Gordon Wilson's A Different Shade of Green, a biblical approach to environmentalism and the dominion mandate. If you'd like to hear the rest of this book, you can find it exclusively on the Canon app. Part 1 Biblical Reasons for Wise Dominion. Chapter 1 From Brown to Green A Spectrum of Attitudes Held by Christians on the Environment. So, fallen man has dominion over nature, but he uses it wrongly. The Christian is called upon to exhibit this dominion, but to exhibit it rightly, treating the thing as having value in itself, exercising dominion without being destructive. Francis A. Schaefer As the outdoor humorist Patrick McManus once wrote, very aptly, I might add, Everyone now points firmly and with great authority in a different direction. The most forceful personality in the group gets his way. The most forceful personality usually turns out to rank on intelligence scales somewhere between sage hens and bowling balls. This quote was referring to a group of people in the woods deciding which direction to look for the car and then getting lost. But it also applies remarkably well to many environmental policymakers we see today. Environmental policies are often not formulated by thinkers. They are formulated by forceful personalities who have a knack for saying what itching ears want to hear in order to gain political influence. This is true regarding the environment or anything else. We Christians are too often tossed to and fro by winds of doctrine issuing from leaders in the secular green agenda and reactionaries against them. In this raging war for political influence, it is of utmost importance to anchor ourselves in the Word of God so we can think and act biblically on this very important topic. So, why am I writing this book? First, Mankind was commanded to take godly dominion, Genesis 1.28, and unfortunately, secularists have taken up this global responsibility, motivated by a number of godless worldviews which have at best produced mixed results. They have been at the helm because Christians have largely abdicated in this area. Second, Christians aren't like-minded, and they're supposed to be, particularly on this issue since the Bible speaks to it so clearly. There is a wide range of opinions among them on the environment, but very few are carefully thought out and use Scripture as their standard. Often people default to some opinion handed down to them by a very opinionated Christian friend or parent, and that opinion isn't necessarily biblical. Third, there is a huge amount of wonderful biodiversity God created, That needs godly dominion. Unfortunately, many Christians are indifferent or apathetic towards nature and biological diversity and have a wrong headed understanding of the dominion mandate. As a biologist, I have an MS in entomology and a PhD in environmental science and public policy, in which I study the reproductive ecology of the eastern box turtle. I've done lab research in molecular genetics of bacteria and field research in plant science. In short, I have worked in a variety of subdisciplines in biology and have taught a broad array of biology courses for about 30 years. In addition, as a Christian, I have spent a lot of time studying what the scripture teaches us on this very important matter. I don't want to follow green fads, but neither do I want to fall off the other side of the boat and reject everything that extreme environmentalists hold dear. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Psalm 24 1. Environmentalists didn't create the earth or the life on it, and they certainly don't own it. I want God's people to reflect on how he views his own creation and how the dominion mandate should be carried out in these modern times where our technological power can be used for great good or great evil towards the living creation. This is a daunting task, but it can be accomplished if we are humble and eager to learn. I realize it is hard for many to jettison dearly held assumptions, but if we become convinced that they don't line up with Scripture, it is time to give them the boot. I also hope that this book will help you see the living creation through new eyes. Consider the terms creation and the environment. It's funny how the name attached to our surroundings can change how we value it. Our environment is part of the creation, but using the word environment makes it sound like it is the realm and responsibility of secular environmentalists. However, since God made it and we are his heirs, we should be the ones who exercise our authority over it. As a Christian biologist who is very keen about God's living creation, it is no wonder I've come across a range of opinions, or lack thereof, on environmental issues. So before I delve into this thorny topic and attempt to lay out a biblically defensible position of how we should view and care for this immense gift from God, I want to first lay out a range of stereotypes held by Christians on the vast topic of the environment. None of these extremes appear to have arisen from careful, thoughtful Bible study. I don't hope to cover every possible view, but you'll get a notion of the broad spectrum of opinions bandied about in Christian circles. This current state of affairs won't do. The universal church is a far cry away from being like-minded on the environment and every other conceivable topic. Nevertheless, our Lord's command to be like-minded still stands. Philippians 2.2 and 1 Peter 3.8 Christian Stereotypes on the Environment 1. Anti-Green Andy His position is held primarily in his gut, not in his head. His beliefs are embedded in a deep personal conviction of mankind's dominion over creation, private property rights, and American individualism. He believes that God made us in his image and put us in charge over all creation. Therefore, we are to fill it up with us, using or discarding whatever is in our way. We should develop Consume, exploit the Earth's resources with little to no concern for cultivating and beautifying them for future generations, such that they thrive and become more glorious under our care. Let future generations figure out how to survive in the smoking crater we left them. Anyone who rejects man's dictatorship over creation due to the belief that we are no more important than animals will receive his palpable disdain. He is deathly afraid to be associated with anything an environmentalist may hold dear, so he defaults to a contrarian position on all environmental concerns. He sees their silly excesses, spin of the data, wrong-headed thinking, and ridiculous heavy-handed governmental regulations, but doesn't want to bother distinguishing baby from bathwater. 2. Premal Pete He thinks God only cares about our spiritual state. Getting people saved is all that really matters. He thinks our bodies are necessary to hand out gospel tracts and our living environment is God's temporary provision to keep our earthly tents propped up while we evangelize during our fleeting tenure on earth. There is no need to concern ourselves with the state of the physical creation because in the end it's all going to burn with fervent heat. 2 Peter 3.10 Probably sooner rather than later. We just need to get people saved before the rapture. Once we're off this rock, we can live forever in our heavenly dwellings. Apathetic April She hasn't really thought about it much. She just exists, eats, sleeps, works, Facebooks, watches movies, and goes to church. She has a vague notion that we are to be good stewards. Heck, if she knows what that means. Recycle? 4. Green Greta She claims that Christians are supposed to be good stewards. That means uber-green. Everything she eats is 100% organic and gluten-free. GMOs are from the pit of hell. She recycles every conceivable thing. She's a global warming alarmist and therefore is guilt ridden about exhaling CO2 and driving her car. She attempts to atone for her carbon footprint sins by acquiring eco indulgences. They include driving a hybrid car, shopping at the co op, walking to work when she is not late, and taking quick, lukewarm showers. She also plans to have 1.7 kids. She loves fair trade because it's fair, and it's not nice to be unfair. She voted for Obama because he's green, and that's cool. She gets more upset at the death of endangered animals than abortion because endangered animals are rare and people aren't. There are many other positions that fall between these exaggerated stereotypes. Now you might be saying to yourself, Gordon, you might be wrong too. I freely acknowledge that possibility. However, I have spent my career studying these issues as they relate to the Bible and to biology and to the environmental movement at large. So read what I have to say and evaluate my application of Scripture, like the Bereans, Acts 17, 11. In case you still think I'm stereotyping unfairly, let me mention just a few real-life examples, and rest assured that I've met people like this face to face. I'm sure you have too. Anti- Green Andy, you couldn't ask for a better Anti- Green Andy than Ann Coulter, as she said on live TV. God gave us the earth. We have dominion over the plants, the animals, the trees. God said, "Earth is yours. Take it, rape it. It's yours." The pre-mill peat approach is perfectly summarized by the folks at the Rapture Ready website. I can only ask where the Bible even hints that saving the whales and fighting global warming are part of the Great Commission. Dealing with environmental problems needs to be left to the politicians. If the world is going to be dissolved, there is no need for us to become too attached to it. It's harder to find published examples of apathetic April because she hasn't thought about environmental issues long enough to put two words together. But apathy about the environment has reached record highs in the past few years, according to Gallup. You can confirm this by asking your cubicle neighbor how often he thinks about stewarding the environment. Greta Greens are everywhere as well because it's the cool, And funded opinion to have. The very progressive religion and culture writer Jonathan Merritt is a perfect example, as he got a book deal out of his opinions. God is green. The idea seems bizarre, almost trivial, yet I'm as sure of that statement as I am that two plus two is four, and the mixing of red and yellow makes orange. I don't want to guilt trip anyone. I want to encourage each of us to see where we fall on this spectrum and then ask ourselves honestly whether our opinion is formed from a mishmash of opinions handed down from friends and foes or whether it is a position solidly grounded in Scripture and good science. This requires careful thought and a love for the truth. Ideas that conform to Scripture. Should be kept and fine tuned according to the Bible, ideas that don't measure up to Scripture or scientific scrutiny must be discarded regardless of how near and dear they are to us. Much of what scientists say isn't factual at all. Often it is their opinions based on highly tenuous assumptions riding on the ethos of their scientific credentials. Being a part of the scientific community for so long, I have developed a knack for seeing a hidden or not-so-hidden agenda and knowing when scientists are really on thin ice. When this is the case, I trust them about as far as I can throw their hybrid car. Proverbs 18, 17 says, The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. There may be environmental policies that seem to be good at face value, but we should do our homework before we hitch our wagon to it. Any environmental policies, even decent ones, founded on any cornerstone other than Christ will go awry sooner or later. We must have the mind of Christ, and not just on what we consider spiritual topics. The scriptures give us a roadmap not just on how we are to live, but how we are to think about everything. This includes the creation. The scriptures, in principle, show us how we are to understand our relationship to nature and how we are to exercise dominion over it. In part one of this book, I want to lay out the biblical basis for our rule over the living creation in light of the dominion mandate of Genesis 1.28. Unfortunately, there are truncated or distorted interpretations of what the dominion mandate means. I hope to present a robust and distinctive view of biblical dominion, and I will outline biblical reasons for wise dominion as I explain why biological diversity is something we must not ruin or squander. In part two, I shift from Bible teacher to biology teacher and discuss the major practical reasons for wise dominion. In part three, I lay out the environmental problems we face today and propose potential biblical solutions. Discussion questions. One, which stereotype describes you best and why? Two, if you are shown to be an error, biblically and ecologically, are you ready to change your view of how dominion should be exercised? Chapter two, the foundation for conservation. In dire necessity, somebody might write another Iliad, or paint an angelus, but fashion a goose? I, the Lord, will answer them. The hand of the Lord hath done this, and the Holy One of Israel created it. Aldo Leopold In this chapter, I want to establish that the dominion mandate, Genesis 1.28, is the foundational command behind conservation, and that the underlying reason for this imperative is God's own evaluation of his work, as is the case on almost every topic, the answers start in Genesis. Genesis: 131 says, "And God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. We see earlier in chapter one that God created the plants, day three, swimming and flying animals, day five, beasts of the earth, livestock, creeping things, and man, day six. In verse 31, he clearly states that all life, along with everything else, was very good. This verse is extremely important because it's foundational to shaping our opinion of all creation. In order for us to have a good and proper assessment of all of life, in all of its diversity, we need to know what value God places on his own work. If God painted a picture on a canvas, it would be prudent of us to first see what he thinks of it before we go shooting off our mouth about it. Many Christians are eager to make judgments on God's artwork, as if they know better about what he should or shouldn't have created. I realize that many people aren't keen on a variety of plants and animals for various reasons, such as thistles, stinging nettles, poison ivy, yellow jackets, spiders, slugs, snakes, mosquitoes. We say they are dangerous, scary, damaging to our property, a health hazard, a nuisance, etc. I grant that many of them are a problem and need to be dealt with as a threat or hazard. But we must keep in mind that many were twisted after the fall in a variety of ways. His statement, it was very good, was pronounced before he cursed his masterpiece of creation. For example, thorns and thistles and predator-prey or pathogen-host relationships were a result of his curse on the creation. Genesis 3:18. Romans 5.12 All plants and animals were perfectly benign in every respect prior to the fall. I believe that those who were ordained to become predators, parasites and pathogens, biological natural evil, were genetically front-loaded by God with exquisitely designed weapon systems. When Adam sinned, they actually became predators parasites, and pathogens. Examples include hypodermic fangs and venom glands of many snakes and stinging cells of cnidarians, jellyfish, sea anemones, etc. Many insidious parasites and pathogens have complicated life cycles that wreak havoc on their hosts. Since much of the living creation was twisted after the fall, how should we view them in light of the dominion mandate? Should we permanently despise and dispose of those creatures that seem to be the most accursed? Or should we seek their restoration? While admittedly there are cursed plants and animals that must be kept under control for man to exercise dominion well, this doesn't mean global extermination. Many of our pests wouldn't be pests. If they were in the right place and in the right quantities. Also, some things we consider pests aren't really pests. We may simply have a strange aversion to perfectly harmless plants and animals due to their inability to conform to our sense of beauty or utility. This can be fixed by a simple attitude adjustment. In other instances, the problem is poor management. Due to our actions, Deliberate or accidental, certain species wind up in the wrong place, or their population gets out of hand. Their status as pests is because of their ability to negatively affect us in some way or another and to get out from under our control very easily. Consider this parallel Christians seek to save the lost through the preaching of the gospel. We aren't on a crusade to exterminate unbelievers. In the same way, Much of creation, including the living part, is bent and distorted to various degrees due to the curse. Romans 8.22 says, The whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, but we can with certainty look forward to its future glory. The creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God, Romans 8.21 We must not be eager to blot out those parts of creation that we deem more accursed. Rather, we should work toward their ultimate redemption. We are excited about the redemption of lost souls, but don't seem to understand how wide-sweeping God is in His redemptive plans. Remember, the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. Let's think God's lavish and merciful thoughts after him rather than in our own stingy categories. Many secularists are desperately eager to come up with reasons to save this or that species from extinction. Often, the value of an endangered or threatened plant or animal is exaggerated. For example, sea otters are extremely essential to the kelp forests. If they go extinct, ecosystem will be jeopardized. American ginseng has many medicinal uses. Without it, many people will suffer. Some endangered tropical frogs are an attraction for ecotourism. Without them, the industry will decline, along with the emotional well-being of nature lovers. Many wild animals and plants are essential to certain religious ceremonies. Without them, their religious practices will be hindered. And so on. Even though some of these reasons are valid, the primary reason for conservation should not be anchored in the utility of the species or society's opinion of it. Why? Because no absolute valuation standard can be found there. We are too subject to change. Conservationists are zealous to come up with compelling ecological, aesthetic, utilitarian or sociological reasons to elevate its value in the eyes of the public. They feel they probably won't get enough buy-in unless they sensationalize the importance of this or that ecosystem or species. I don't dispute that many habitats and species have untold and undiscovered value for the welfare of mankind, either directly or indirectly. I also think we should continue to explore and unveil the hidden treasures that God's living creation has for us and for the creation as a whole. But if we at present don't happen to have a comprehensive list of ways a particular species is valuable, that doesn't mean it's without value. In such cases, the value of creatures has become too dependent on man's opinion. It's all about getting each species to win a popularity contest. If a particular species' future in some way hinges on whether we give it a thumbs up or a thumbs down, conservationists will go on a tireless crusade to persuade the masses to give it a thumbs up. In other words, if a threatened or an endangered species needs our help, conservationists must attempt to justify its existence by showing how beneficial it is to humanity in some way or another. This is relatively easy if the species is big, cute, and furry, like the giant panda bear. It's a totally different ball game if the animal in question is a small, boring, brown, and gray moth no one even knows exists or some despised venomous snake, like the Russell's viper, responsible for thousands of deaths each year, or the gray wolf that is considered by hunters and ranchers to be a scourge to big game and cattle. These creatures are hard-pressed to justify their existence to the general public. Yes, certain biological or conservation societies may value them for ecological aesthetic or scientific reason, but these reasons aren't taken very seriously by the lay community who despise them and don't really grasp their ecological significance. I think snakes are amazing and beautiful, but I can talk until I'm blue in the face to people who hate snakes. My argumentation may be fierce and lucid, but I won't prevail on them a bit. Though I enjoy winning converts to my snake fan club, my opinion isn't what matters. What matters is what God proclaimed after day six. We might not think this or that creature is particularly useful, particularly pretty, particularly interesting. We might not know it even exists. But we do know it has absolute value simply because God made it and said, it was good. Someone might object by saying that after the fall, certain creatures cease to be good. Regardless, the dominion mandate still stands. Good management and pest control, yes. Extermination unto extinction? No. Wise dominion seeks to restrain problematic pests, but the ultimate goal should be to redeem and restore them. In short, for the Christian, Plant and animal species need not justify their existence to us by having some obvious list of humanitarian benefits they can bestow on society. Nor do they need to have some mysterious ecological trait that enhances some ecosystem in some subtle way, which they probably do. Neither should it require an advocate to ceaselessly champion their rightful place on Earth. Their value is intrinsic and divinely granted at creation. It is not dependent on our attitude toward them. Their innate value and written charter for existence are in the words spoken in Genesis. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Discussion Questions 1. Briefly describe the basis for a species' value. 2. Can we fight pests and still value them? Explain. 3. Can we be an avid hunter and conservationist? Explain. Chapter 3. Food and Other Good Stuff You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth, and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. Psalm 104, 14-15. through 15. Another reason for conservation of the creation is that life was given to us for food, though it is usually dead when we eat it. Without it our earthly tents, needless to say, would fall down and fall apart. Plants were for our sustenance from the beginning. Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. Genesis 1.29 If we believe the secular story, then plants were evolving purposely And fruit was never intended by God for human and animal nutrition or medicine. It was just a happy evolutionary coincidence that they evolved nutritious reproductive structures that taste good to animals and to us, and that happened to have useful pharmaceuticals tucked away in their tissues. Although evolutionists would avoid the word purpose, they would grant that there are evolutionary reasons for the interdependency of life. For example, attractive flowers were naturally selected because attracting pollinators was advantageous, because flowers need to be pollinated to reproduce successfully. Tasty, fleshy fruits were also naturally selected because ingested fruit is one way to disperse seeds from the parents and plant them in ready-made fertilizer. We need not object to the functionality of pretty flowers or tasty fruits. Yes, they are selectively advantageous, but their beauty and taste was no evolutionary accident. They were made and designed by a loving God, not only for their own reproduction, but also for nutrition and the enjoyment of man and animals. Animals for food and much more. In Genesis 9, 3, God opens up the menu to include animals. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. Animal flesh was also intended to provide sustenance for us after the flood. In the Old Covenant, both plants and animals are used for sacrifices. The Lord made the first garments from animal hides to clothe Adam and Eve's nakedness. Leather, hair, and wool are mentioned many times in the Scripture in making various articles of clothing. The phrase, a land flowing with milk and honey, clearly expresses the manifold blessing of God to the children of Israel. Life is interdependent. Milk and honey do not arise from nothing. Milk, for human consumption, is mostly produced by cattle and goats. These two animals. Of course, need good pasture. Good pasture needs fertile soil and rain. Bees need nectar-producing flowers. All of this is from the hand of God. It is easy to fall into a perfunctory mindset when we thank God in the abstract for our food, clothing and homes. Perfunctory prayers occur when we don't see God his creation, and the secondary human causes he has ordained to cultivate, harvest, and bring these blessings to us, i.e., farmers, ranchers, loggers, carpenters, clothing manufacturers, employees in the produce or meat section of the grocery store, chefs, cooks, etc. We thank God in the abstract by not pondering him as the source of the blessings, or the source of the means He uses to bring all of this to us. Without Him, we would have none of it. Ponder that for a moment. Think of the chain of events that produced the food and brought the food to you, and thank God. He created the animals and plants that provide us our food, and so much more. But he also sovereignly orchestrates every step along the long and convoluted way to our mouths, clothing, and homes. Many things today might not be safe to eat, but there are probably many more plants and animals that could be enlisted for our gastronomic pleasures and needs. I am in awe of how much more variety has appeared in the grocery stores in the last several decades of my existence. Part of this variety is due to globalization, and I'm sure people in the food industry will continue to explore new ways to combine what we already have into new dishes as they keep exploring the riches of creation to expand the already immense global menu. When people like the taste of something, a demand for it arises, and supply attempts to meet that demand. Consequently, we can and have over-harvested nature for particular plants or animals, seriously depleting their population, even to the point of driving them to extinction. Overfishing and bycatch are just two examples that are of serious concern in the global fishing industry. We have done this in the past, and we are beginning to learn from our mistakes. Many nations are becoming increasingly aware of the concept of sustainability and are seeking to implement it in food production through the farming and husbandry of plants and animals that we like or need. Happily, this takes the pressure off the wild populations that can be depleted, extirpated, or driven to extinction. You might be wondering why I'm bringing all of this up. Of course, we eat fruit and wear leather and have homes made of wood. Of course, a lot of pharmaceuticals are plant-derived. Why make a point of it if it's so obvious? My point is to show from Scripture that our use of these things is part of God's purpose. It is true that humans are clever. They figured out how to use plant and animal products in countless ways, but God made those living resources and made us clever. This is important to point out because we quickly start taking these blessings for granted. Also, when tens of millions of people like something a lot, there is a big demand for it, and certain people try to meet that demand by cultivating it or harvesting it from the wild. If the latter occurs, then overharvesting can threaten or endanger the plant or animal. We need reminders that when we eat plants, Use plant-derived pharmaceuticals as medicine, eat bacon or burgers, wear leather boots and belts, enjoy our cotton and linen clothing, and relax in the coziness of our homes. God intended all of those uses from the very beginning. Acknowledging this adds heartfelt gratitude to our prayers, thanksgiving, and makes us more circumspect about how our consumption affects the supply of these God-given blessings. Remember that greed for stuff or money can easily lead to overharvest or wanton slaughter of these living resources. Prudent and thankful consumption will be blessed. Discussion questions. List five ways plants were used in the Bible other than food. Two. List five ways animals were used in the Bible other than food. Three, what should be our response to these manifold uses? How can we nurture this response?